Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Pushkin. It's been a little over nine months since Rick Rubin last interviewed Killer Mike and LP for the show. Last time they spoke... Run the Jewels were finishing up their fourth album at Rick's studio, Shangri-La. And since then, the world's been upside down, dealing with the pandemic, social unrest, and a racial reckoning unlike anything we've seen in the last couple of decades. This album feels like a reflection of all of that. Killer Mike and LP have been raw since day one, making a career rapping about the hypocrisy and injustice that a lot of other people are just now waking up to. As Rick says, it makes their new album sound almost prophetic. But as you'll hear them say, they never set out to make protest songs or the soundtrack for 2020. They just speak their truth, and sometimes that truth is ugly and dark, but can also be funny and at times downright joyous. This is easily my favorite release of the year so far. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Rick and Run the Jewels had a lot to talk about. We wanted this one to breathe a little bit to give Killer Mike and LP time to really dig into the making of their new album and the state of the world. Here's Rick Rubin with Run the Jewels. Let's talk about the album. Hell yeah. Before you started, was there any overarching principle in mind going into the fourth album? Yeah, it had to be jamming. And and it had to be a return to aggression. Yeah, no doubt. Like we just knew that we we wanted this record to to we wanted it to be a shotgun blast, man. We wanted it to be fire, and the, like you said, the other one was like water. It was blue. It was you know, it was tapping into some sadness that we both like naturally kind of tapped into. 
And I don't think we felt that way this time. I think we felt like ready to kind of like brand new again. I think we felt ready to rot, crush, kill, destroy. Like, and I, I, I think that it was sort of unspoken. Me and Mike don't really talk too much about this shit, but we, but I remember I, I sort of, um, one of the first sessions that we had where I started playing him some of the music that I had been making to play him. Cause that's what I do. I, I go and I make a bunch of music and I kind of pick the things that I think are, you know, worthy of both of us jumping on and play it for Mike, see how he responds. And um, one of the first things I played him was the thing that I wanted the most for him to like, which was the first song on the album, Yankee and the Brave, which in a lot of ways was a return to a lot of the older sort of production techniques that I used to use coming up. I was using, a, you know, using samplers and breaks and, and, and kind of filtered through, you know, a new un- understanding of production that, had, that I had gotten to through the years of, of really understanding frequency and low end and all of the things that really matter when you're, you're bumping some shit in the system. But I was just praying that Mike got it. You know what I mean? Like that Mike got what I wanted out of that spirit. And of course he did immediately. And he immediately kind of like grinned and was like, oh yeah, this is, this is, this is the first jam. You know what I mean? And, um, we recorded that jam and ooh and uh, ooh la la, same day, two in in one day, and we and I remember even playing the shit for you actually, where I was like, like yeah, yeah, we don't have much, but I think we have like the first like two songs, <laughs> and 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 even you were like, yeah, those are the first two songs, um, right? <laughs> yeah. Blew yeah, my mind. And, but, but, yeah, und- it was it was undeniable out of the right. box. For, for and me. it was weird, though, because that's not what normally happens. It's usually like you do a bunch of jams and then you figure out the order. And this one, like, really sort of wrote itself pretty quickly. Like, at least the first half of the record seemed to, like, write itself. So I think we just wanted to be lean and mean and, 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 and you know, fucking fl- and carrying flamethrowers. On, on that first track, do you remember... What came first lyrically? That was Mike. Back at it, look at it, like that whole pattern. I was like, oh shit, Mike is Mike is flipping on cats. Like immediately he set the tone with that shit. And that was that to me, that just set the tone for the album. Yeah, that that line had been in my mind like hear that back at it, like a crack at it, Mr. Black Mac. That that had been in my mind like a year. Like, like let's fuck it up. I'm Mike Tyson. You know what I'm saying? I'm I'm I believe in starting hard L, coming out swinging yeah l is l is like mayweather-esque in that he has the ability to finish his his thoughts of finishing the beautiful like i don't care how well you think you did against floyd he gonna take you them 12 rounds and your weakness is gonna show because his defense is impenetrable so but me i'm coming in ducking moving side to side trying to knock your fucking head off so i had wanted to that i wanted that to be the first line on the album since we finished the last album you know uh, after after I'm done with like an album, it for me it's like I'm already thinking the, the next. Like watching that Michael Jordan shit like really helped me understand that I'm not insane. In my mind, everybody's sleeping on me. I don't give a fuck if they not sleeping on me. They sleeping on me. So that that's what I tell myself to get myself ready. And I think that's part of the reason I always lean toward aggressive rapping. You know what I'm saying? Even when I'm happy. It can sound aggressive. So for me, yeah, I'm like, man, you motherfuckers still don't get how dope Run The Jewels is. And here the fuck we go again. And I'm going to feel like that every Run The Jewels record because I don't ever want to get complacent. And I don't ever want to get compliant to whatever the new rule or sound is. I always want to push. Yeah. 
I was going to say there are specific lines in that in that song that when we listened to them in the studio, I loved them. But now, when they came out in the world, it almost seems like psychic mind reading. Like it's it's really incredible how in the moment the lyrics sound like they're being written about what's happening. But I heard them before it was happening, and at that time, I, I would say. I didn't feel any threat of it happening. If it, it was, it's remarkable, and that was not long ago. Right. How the energy shifted. Right. Mike, what do you? Where do you think that comes from? I think that the times are forever and always, and you know the oligarchs are always making slaves of us. We're always resisting. Rome would have crushed, crumbled two hundred years prior had it not been the circus for the circus. If there is no entertainment, if there is no distraction, if there is no what is the food weekly or what is the next fucking app, if none of that happens and you're left to see the world for what it really raw is, we're in a fucking jungle all the time. Now, because I represent a group of people that happen to be on the lowest rung of that ladder in the most brutal capitalistic system in the world, we always see the jungle, even though you can distract yourself with drugs and drinking and fun and, you know, even even and all distractions are bad. Sometimes you just focus in on you and your family. The jungle still is fucking going on. And I think that what, you know, for me, it's like everybody start paying attention at the exact same time. So the lyrics that I've been rapping for seven, I met with the Black Panthers yesterday. Um, very good meeting. A lot of these people are in their 70s and have given over 50 years of their life to the revolution and the struggle for the proletariat to overcome, you know, what we are overcoming. And, you know, the first thing I said, besides thanking them for putting me next to Cardi B in our open letter was, hey, I've been waiting for you guys to call me 17 years. And I've actively been shouting y'all out. Um, I have been representing for people like Matulu Shakur, um, Asada Shakur, you know, um, including but not limited to people like Leonard Pelter, the American Indian movement and things of that nature. So I'm like, I'm fucking glad that you no longer look at rappers as simply the minstrel class um, to be used by you or the other side to repeat. But I'm glad you're engaging me as an organizer, because for me, that's what this shit is about. Music and art represent the times when Nina Simone says an artist's duty to represent the times. So I'm glad that the words hit people, but they're always true. Before Eric Garner, I can't breathe is true. Post Eric Garner, I can't breathe is true. And unless we do something to to resist the state and its tyranny over us, using authoritarian, using our own citizens, fellow citizens as authority figures to the most brutal extent, then those songs will always be relevant. It's just when the people choose to pay attention. And that that's the difference. There is no going to the movies. There is no, you know, distracting yourself from what's going on right now because everybody's the fucking side. So, you know, I'm glad they got it. So if the jungle is ongoing, can you be optimistic? Absolutely. Why wouldn't you be? You know, why, 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 why deny yourself happiness in the midst of it? You know, I don't, I don't know. All I know is for 401 years, my people have been here. And it's been a hellacious 401 years. And for 401 years, they have resisted and for full 101 years, they have found joy in times of brutal sadness. My grandparents, you know, I remember asking my grandmother, you know, I'm a, I'm a young punk ass kid. We raised by our grandparents. 
you know, me and my sisters, we don't get Air Jordans, but, you know, we'll, we'll manage to get the $60 Nikes at Marshall. So our whole shit is we don't think we're rich. We don't understand how rich we are until one day we ask our grandmother, what did you get for Christmas? Now, my grandmother's from a landowning family. They have a farm, but they're still working a farm. They wear potato sack dresses. And she said, we'd be lucky to get potato sack drawers and a bag of fruit. And I'm thinking, bag of fucking fruit? For Christmas underwear? Like, what the fuck kind of Auntie Linda underwear giving ass shit is this? And my grandfather said, shit, what Christmas? I had two sisters and I had to work and I was in the third grade. And I'm thinking, you're nine in the third grade. There is no such thing as Christmas for him and there has never been until he starts a family and his wife and his children and grandchildren. But I, I realized then that what was, or, or I realized then and more and more now that happiness is not currently or always defined by the wilds of the jungle coming on us. Even if you're on a hunt, you're gonna find time to laugh. Even if you're being hunted and you evade capture, you're gonna find time to laugh. And joy is the greatest antidote for pain. I have seen in the last two years, you know, three or four years, my mother died via the telephone. I've seen um, a young niece of my wife and I die of cancer and never lost their joy through it all. You know what I'm saying? So in the jungle, that's really all you have. The, the ability to love, the ability to comfort one another, to experience joy and the euphoria of surviving together. There's, there's you know, as an adrenaline junkie, you know, um, my, my man Carlos, who's an amazing comedian on Wild and Out said, man, being black is, is, is dangerous and kind of fun as fuck. So I think the people, for regular people, the jungle is dangerous, it is wild. But it's, it's, it's at times you gotta smile because you know, you wanna cry, but it's fun as fuck. That's one of the things about Run the Jewels to me that's so beautiful uh, that because these records are funny and joyous and these records aren't hopeless. You're not, you're not talking to two dudes who have lost hope. You're hearing two dudes fighting for their hope. You're hearing two dudes, you know, giving their take on hope. Um, hope doesn't mean blindness. Hope doesn't mean um, unawareness. You know, those two things are not, you know, codependent. Um, and I love the fact that we could make a record that is intense at times and speaks to, you know, the, the, the shit that's going on in a real way that is painful but doesn't leave you feeling drained and depressed and doesn't leave you feeling hurt. It leaves you feeling hopefully energized and excited. Um, and not in a typical way, not in a, you know, I think that people um, underestimate the value of honesty, you know, and, and how invigorating that could be like, it, like how energetic honesty can be the record ending the way that it ended was important. You know, the record ending, like we're in front of a firing squad, and we are giving our summation of, of, of what makes us us and the reason why we, we do what we do in the form of sort of relating it back to personal stories about the women in our lives and, and, and some of the inspiration and some of the struggle that, that sort of leads us to who we are. And, and then the last line is, fuck you too. And, and then you get into Yankee and the Brave and Yankee and the Brave uh, is this stupid TV show via the 19, early 1980s, like Dukes of Hazard or Knight Rider. And the, the rascally, you know, the, the, the rascal anti-heroes somehow escaped with their lives and then sped off together 
in a, in a, in a Buick Grand National, you know, um, to smoke more weed and fuck and, 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 and fight another day. And, um, that to me is always the reason why I'm, I'm grateful that my partnership with Mike exists, because I think that I went, I struggled for a long time to find that type of voice. And I needed a friend to help me, to, to help me have that type of voice where I wanted to, I, my music in the way that I used to write, it could, it, it was often very heavy, but I don't think I always nailed the, I don't think I always nailed the energy of, of hope. You know what I mean? I don't think, and, and I don't think hope has to be a statement. You don't have to say everything might be okay. Someday. That's not the, that's not hope. That's, that's delusion. Um, or that's, you know, wishful thinking, not necessarily delusion. Maybe it's just wishful thinking, but you don't have to say that you just have to convey a spirit of, of fighting another day, I think. And that's something that might help round out for me. Like I'm, I'm I listened to, to some of my earlier music and while I'm proud of it, the reason why I love being in run the jewels as an artist now is because it took our, our friendship to find this other space, you know what I mean? Which is like, yeah, okay. You know what? I can actually talk about this stuff, but there's another zone. There's another way to talk about this shit that doesn't leave, um, that doesn't leave you feeling beat down. It feels more of a more evolved position is what it feels like. I think so. I mean, I think that our friendship has evolved us as artists. It's really interesting when you have someone who makes, where you find that pocket where that, where someone else and their ideas, although strictly their ideas and strictly their personalities, not, nothing that you would ever think of, right? But yet somehow they really do kind of complete your, you know, your personality as an artist. It, it, it allows you to play your position stronger. It allows you to be who you are stronger because you know that there's a balance, you know, and it allows you to represent certain things that in a different way that you couldn't say, you know, like, uh, I can't, I can't yeah. say the stuff that Mike says. It's not my, it's not my life. It's not my personality. It's not who, but, but I can stand in it. I can stand with it and I can show up for it, you know, and, 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 and be myself. And it, and it, you know, in, in that regard, it's like, um, it's really refreshing for me. And that's why I keep doing it. It makes it a strong collaboration. The fact that you're both so different, but together make something that's bigger than the individual. It's, it's really cool. Right. Exactly. We'll be back with Run the Jewels after a quick break. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with the Apple Pay purchases. And 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. 
With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. We're back with Rick and Run the Jewels. We never talked about this before, but how did the band, how did the band start? I know we're mainly talking about the new album, not because we just talked so recently, but last time we talked, we, we didn't really get into how you guys started doing this together. Well, I did. I, I produced Mike's album, Rap Music, um, and that was the first project we did together. And that was just magic. I think we both were just just loved that. And, and it just felt really, really great. I definitely recognized way before L, this was a marriage made in heaven. And I say that in a good way. Like, <laughs> like, like the world had beat my buddy up, man. It had been some assholes out there to my man. But I'm just hopelessly optimistic and I'm a romantic. And I knew the first three beats L ever played me that for the rest of my career, this motherfucker is going to be producing me. And after wow. the first time we went out on the road together is run the jewels word to my manager well, the party manager circle joe sitting right next to me when i got off the bus joe was like so what we gonna do now you give back to a solo album I'm like absolutely not i'm in a rap group like and that was it like like for me that was there's nothing else to say like i love this dude as a human being he smokes cigarettes but i walk away and then i come back i love his his want for good even on his meanest honoriest day it, it is about you know he wants he wants everything to be okay like l is not as cynical as people would have thought the lp you know was but the motherfucker was just genuine and dope and he made the illest mates the illest shit ever and i'm just like as a rap as a kid who grew up on def jam no ass kissing how could you not want to make the illest shit ever every time like, I still remember when the fuck I went and picked up the Unbad album at front, by, with my own money by myself. That's how LP beats make me feel every time I rap. So for me, I was just like, this is it. And L had definitely, by then, after the first six months, I was this, we just knew we're going to be making records. But the group got together, I think, ultimately, 
because of the rap music album, um, which is classic. And thank, thank God for Jason DeMarco putting us together. But I think Jason DeMarco, who, who I always give credit to, is the wizard in this movie. He's a person that saw from a beat and rap perspective, but from a personality perspective that we could potentially lock in. Because when I called him excited, going crazy, the first album, it's just rap music. He said, I was hoping you guys would like each other and you say that. Because I was like, Jason, he has to produce the album. And Jason was like, I'm going to figure it out. So in my mind's eye, if this is the illustrated novel, like Jason literally is Mr. Glass. You know, he, he, his job was to pull the superhero out of both of us and put us together and say, and say well, well, here it is. You know what I mean? The, so, it's funny, though, because and, and that's all true. But the way that Run the Jewels started was way more accidental, because even though we had already been that's the origin story of us meeting. I already had plans for you, man. I have. Listen, when you call me to do the mixtape and I've never said this to you. When you called me to do a mixtape, when, when you was like, yo, I got to turn in a mixtape, I, I write slow, Joe was like, you going to go up there, you just going to do it? I was like, I don't give a fuck. I say, I'm going to get back on his shit. It's something there. I told you, I said, it's something there. Based off butane, I'm just like, I'm supposed to be rapping. I would have rapped 20 albums with you for free. I said, I didn't give a fuck. I really, and I remember you saying to me, yo, Mike, there's no money. He was like, I already have, I was like, I don't give a shit. I just wanted to, because I knew the more we did it together, the better the chances of us keeping doing it together was. And, and I, I was in love. Like, if I compared it to my, to my relationship with Shane and my wife, at that point, even though I was still a lying, cheating dog, the first year, I just knew I was in love. I was just like, this is who the fuck I'm married. So even if I would have went and did 10 other projects with other producers, at that point, I never wanted to be produced by anybody in that way but LP. So I was I, I was in. Yeah. It's one of the things that's really unique for you guys in today's world is, first of all, you're a rap group. There's almost none. And you're a rap group that has a singular production style. Nobody, not even individual rappers have that anymore. Nobody is coming from one place production style. It's always a lot of voices musically on every on every album. So this is a very yeah. unique throwback situation. Yet we're it sounds yet yeah, it sounds super modern at the same time. It's thank you. It's man. like traditional and cutting edge mixed in one. But again, but yo, we but we we me and Mike both grew up on all of the shit from your era that you were involved in, and that's how that stuff was, and that's and that's how, and so you know we I think talk about this a lot but like our our age and our reference point has been utilized for us as a as a weapon to some degree because we have a reference that um at this point it, there's enough time between that era and now where there aren't that many people who are active like really on the cutting edge right now who legitimately have that reference, like, you know, like who legitimately, you know, know what it was like to listen to In Control Volume One with Marley Mall when it first came out, you know what I mean? And the first posse rec, the first posse cut album where, where a producer was saying, I'm producing this and I'm putting different voices together. We there, there are people who don't remember what it was like to listen to Public Enemy when they came out and or, or to BDP and understand, you know, that, people uh, had the ability to craft the sound, you know, ultra magnetic MCs, you know, said, said G also for, for BDP, but like 
we're not two rappers looking for beat. This is a musical operation. Like it, it, you know, we have a sound and, and, you know, it's based in the sound that, that I created, but it has evolved because of our partnership. Like the reason why I run the jewels sounds the way it does now, as opposed to like what I was making from my own shit is because when I knew when I got one mic, I'm a producer. So I was like, well, I need, I need to get out of my way and, or get out of Mike's way in a sense. When I was like, all right, I'm going to produce Mike's whole album. I need to open up and be, and know and understand and open up and, um, what I do in reference to who Mike is and what his roots are too. You know what yeah. I mean? So that added like that, that, um, added like a bounce that added like, um, uh, and, you know, uh, another element of it, because I wanted to give Mike the best platform to be able to do everything that he was like really in the pocket on. And that transferred over to Run the Jewels and it built that, you know, that ended up building that sound. So the real foundation of Run the Jewels production is a real combination of of influences to a degree as as seen through me, you know what I mean, as filtered through me and. Like with me, like the reason I'm not out there producing for a bunch of other people is because I'm in Run the Jewels. <laughs> like I, I don't, I don't have a better group to produce for than Run the Jewels. Like that's for me, that's what I want to do because Mike always trusted me. Like, and that was one of the, that was I think one of the deciding factors for me as a as a as an artist to be like, yeah, I'm gonna run with this dude because. He gave me a gift that that some people don't really want to give you. You know, he the best, man. You know, like he the best. He the best <laughs> rapper producer on motherfucking earth. And that's it. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Ain't nothing but else rare, to it. But it's but but it's a, it's rare. Even when you're, I've done a lot of different albums for different rappers. You know, in the past. And the ones where there was that sort of trust there, the one the, were the were the ones that were the most exciting for me. You know what I mean? Mike was always really open. Mike was always open to my shit, and which is cool because my shit is a little weird. My shit is a little weirder than the sh- you know it, it is. Um, it always was. It was always a little jagged, a little dissonant, a little from left field. You know, that's what's ill. Like you're not an imitator. Like that's the illest shit. Also, rap nerd shit. So many people imitated, and I, I don't even mean in a bad way, because if I hadn't been a 12-year-old imitating Ice Cube, I never would have developed my style. Early NWA, early Ghetto Boys, early shit references Run DMC. A lot of it references Run DMC in terms of the way they were patterns, the beats. But the good ones, they, they, they rose to the top because they innovated as they imitated, imitate, you innovate, and before you know it, you've made your own thing. What's ill about your shit and what's weird and what I love about the weirdness of it is it's a progression of the shit we grew up on and it's never been a cheap imitation. It has never been, L, I've never walked in a room and L just says, yeah, I just went and chopped the DLC. So I'm like, nah, man, L went and found and recreated. And, and I'm like, it's out, but it isn't. It's this, what the fuck have you done? And before you know it, we rapping our ass off. And that's what I love about, he ain't a biter, he ain't a swag swiper. He will take an influence um, from our 12 year old or 13 year old or, or conversation about BDP and he'll give something that feels like that to me, but it, I never, I don't, I, I never even get the urge to swipe a pattern from Chris. You know what I'm saying? It's just that I feel like Chris when I'm rapping this shit. And that's, that's a, I don't know what to call it, I don't know what he does, but the weirdness is something I trust 
because it's from a pure place. And it, and it is not just swag swiping. So he, I just want to say I love your weirdness. Keep that weird shit coming, bro. For real. I don't have a choice. I don't have a choice. I wanted to be EPMD. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I I never, I, I could never, I, one day I just woke up. Remember when I first started doing records and people were like, it's so fucking crazy. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This shit just sounds like, this shit just sounds like normal dope hip hop to yeah. me. And then it took me a while to be like, Maybe it is. Like, maybe I'm weird. What, what's crazy, though, is with the EPMD references, I remember, <laughs> like, if you look on through the to Reggie, through Reggie Noble shit, they did funk in a way that was not West Coast. Because West Coast did funk kind of bright, kind of... And, and sometimes... No, they made it, if it was, They made it real. Yeah, if it was, but yeah. if it was pure, pure West Coast, it damn near even got kind of so funky, it became something that was like your parents' shit, like boogie almost, right? And I, and I don't mean that in a bad way to pun, but it was it was a boogie-ass. EPMD did that funk that was like, it was nasty, it was riding, it was it was something else, man. And it was dark, and it was sewery and grimy. And you took that into, take that influence into some wilder, weirder, more spaced out. Like if their shit had us on the gutters and sewers, it was when the water goes down into the gutters and sewers. Like what kind of wild, weird shit is under the subways? And for me, a rap nerd from the South, that's home. I always wanted to be able to do that kind of shit with those kind of people. Like Premier, being from Texas, was one of the things that kept me rapping. I was like, yo, Prem is from Texas. Oh, we can do this. Scarface loving New York hip hop. So it's a dream to me to rap. So even though I'm not a New York MC, my my Southern take on New York MCing some for some reason locks right into what L does in a way that I couldn't get in the South for much of my career. Even though people kind of felt where I was coming from, it wasn't from that soil. And I think that hybrid is something that has made our sound something that that is there are no bounds to it. You know, I remember when Bun B called me L, like second album, like Run the Jewels 2. And he said, Kill, keep doing what y'all doing because you guys are gonna have an opportunity to be like outcasts. And I'm like, you know, at that point you smiling like, all right, Bun, you know, thank you. He said, no, he said no. He said, because they locked me and Pimp into this thing, even though Pimp would want to expand and do this, even though I, he say they locked us in. He said, that's not bad. We've had a, he say Ball and G, people have a perception. He say, people have no perceptions of y'all. Y'all just have the expectation of whatever you want, we're gonna be willing to take the ride with you. And he said, that's a freedom, so embrace that. So I've never shied away from a lot of L's ideas because my OGs was just like, whatever the thing y'all doing, can take you guys past regionalism, past hip hop, um, elitism, past past Southern um, stereotypisms. Like Two Chains is on this record in big part because he's an LP fan. He's my friend. You know what I'm saying? He, he, we, we, I've loved his rap. He's loved my rap for years. But he said, "I got to get on the track with the white man." You know, he loves it, and that's such a that's such a that's a beautiful thing because. That doesn't happen otherwise. And and before you know it, and I would never say this because there's such a huge act to me. Before you know it, we are accepted like my idols. We accept it like cast. We can go a lot of different places, do a lot of different things because I trust the weirdness that's LP. That's this this beautiful thing. You know, he's produced for Jeezy before. If I was Jeezy, L would have been, L would have he would have did Thug Motivation 3. 
you know. But thank God. Thank you, Jeez. I love you, brother. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it all worked out. It, I will say that while you're from the South, it has a distinctly East Coast sound. Between yeah. the two of you, it is it is definitely East Coast rap music. And that's my fault because that's my those are my for sure my roots. And like I said, but we but I but but my partnership with Mike and my interest in rap music in general. Like, I love all that shit. I always love music from the South. I love music from the West. I love music from... That's something that I think that for a long time, people made a certain assumption about me that I was sort of... I came from a certain ilk and that I was only appreciative of a certain type of thing. I take what I, I, take what I feel out of those influences and, and add them in. And I think that the, the hybrid shit is the shit that's the most potent to me. You know, like... And so me and Mike are just immediately a hybrid and naturally a hybrid. It's it, it wouldn't be as powerful if it was just me on my beats. It just wouldn't be. Mike coming in with a with a with a southern style and influence just as you know, just as heavy as as the influences that we share, he comes in with a, with the other thing. And me coming in with, you know, my roots, we're fucking with sound here. You know what I mean? Like we're we're creating sound. Next the next track is uh Ooh La La, which is my favorite beat on the album. Oh, really? That's awesome. Tell me a little bit about how did it, like, for, even from a musical basis, how did it start? Did it start with the sample? How did it start? It started because I had, I was plotting on that Greg Nice sample for fucking decades. It started because I always wanted to sample something. I didn't know what it was going to be. I'm just a huge Greg Nice fan, huge Nice and Smooth fan, uh, an, an unheralded great hip hop group that I feel like people aren't like should go back and listen to their records because they're so fucking fun and funky and dope. So it just started with that, and it started with that little piano thing that I played, and then and then chopped up. And and that record is a perfect example, I think, of what Run the Jewels for is about spiritually in terms of the a production approach. Because I think more than any other record before it, one of the things that I knew going into this was like, yo, I'm actually going to lean into my influences on this. Like, I'm 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 actually going to put them on display. Like Mike pointed out, which is, does not mean that I want to recreate songs from from my childhood or or, or um, but. It, I'm going to try, if I can, to transfer the spirit of those jams. Yeah. To transfer, to transfer that. Everyone knows, like, there's, this, there's a particular type of hip-hop banger that, that, that comes from an era before this one that if you can nail the spirit of it, will put a fucking huge smile on anyone who loves hip-hop's face. It doesn't yeah. matter if you're a new hip-hop fan listening to all the new styles of production and all the new shit, or you're an old one. There's something special there that if you can harness it, and that's what I was hoping to try and capture with that with that beat, where it was like the 808s and the, and the drums and everything is super modern, but you're gonna, I wanna, I, we really, and that was like uncharted territory for Run the Jewels. Run the Jewels making a song that makes you just smile immediately is was felt like it was uncharted territory like damn near a party jam when you hear what we're rapping about when you actually listen to the lyrics it's pretty hard like it's not you know it's one of the more meta tracks where it has a lot of hip-hop references in it 
Yeah. 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 That's true. I think Mike was like inspired by that feeling, right? Mike, Mike dropped a few J Rue. He dropped uh, ODB. Uh, it was, it's important to me to, to tip my hat to those, man. And I just got to say the J Rue, the damager homage in a, in a big way to me, because you understand you, I'm, I'm in, I'm in Spanish class and Miss Blaze class and Ernest Hawkins is to my left and my girlfriend, Teresa's to my right. And yo, we just three kids from the South that love music. So Teresa's like, you know, slim model-esque little thing, look like a, look like a, a good girl. And she would be fucking rapping eight ball and MJG cause her brother Kevin was playing it. And, and I'm like, what the fuck? And then I come in and play records for them. And I can remember turning Ernest on the shit like the brand Nubian, um, turning them on the, I think, far side. But the J. Rue, the damage shit, me and my man, Terrence T. Flo, who married my cousin, we went crazy over this dude. Just this dude that pugilistic linguistics, check out the mystics, they're fantastic, it means fantastic. Check it, you'll get your ass kicked, challenge my verbal gymnastics, vernacularatics, vocabulary, calisthenics. I'm just like, oh wow, I probably should practice more. I'm spending too much time fucking. So I always wanted to give him that. You know what I'm saying? So thank you, you for know, noticing. You know what's funny, man? So about, about Jay Rue? What? Well, I'll tell you if you don't I'm know. I'm listening. Um, the first, the, so in the, in the 90s, when I was making my rep in the scene, basically as a rapper, and the biggest thing that could, that could happen for you was that you could get on Stretch Armstrong and Bobito's show. And, you could, and they could think that you're dope enough to bring you up to freestyle on their show. And that was how I made my name. That, you know, sort of at the very beginning of company flow, the first time I was ever invited up there was in 1993 and stretch Armstrong asked me what beat I wanted to freestyle. So the first beat that I ever freestyled to was over the come clean beat by J. Rue, the damager. Yeah. Boom, 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 boom. which was just the nastiest <laughs> fucking thing that anyone had ever it. heard ever at the time. And it just made it just made every rapper just be like, oh, my God, I have to I have to have a beat like that. I have to I have to be able to fucking rhyme like that. Like and J. Ru actually comes to um, comes to Max Fish, which is a bar that that I own in New York that I call in New York. J. Ru still comes around. So he showed love to me, man. It just I was like a fucking goofy ass kid on the other side of the Internet. Just like, oh, man, thank you, man. Him and God bless the dead dirt dog like. ODB, like, I love the Wu-Tang as a collective and individual. So, you know how you pick people you patting yourself after. Like, um, I wear the, I the, the, the crescent moon and star because um, drug dealers in my neighborhood that was really cool and Ray Corn wore. So it was like, that's I, that's me right there. I'm in the Wu. The, the, the truck jury is ghost face influence. But when I think about the polars in the Wu, the jizzle, liquid swords is one of the most coldly calculating beautiful just hip-hop of record it, it is dean's list and then the king of absurdity and wildness brooklyn zoo odb makes this record that's a, to me a polar opposite of <laughs> but man that he was one of the the greatest influences of letting go me and my my two of my children's mother would play that she was a southern too love music but me and mimi would just play that shit every fucking day so i always wanted to get dirt dogs flowers i never got a chance to meet the god but i met ghost met ray a relationship with raider i'm blessed to 
But had I been met Dirt Dog, man, I would have, I would have just, I would have bowed to him because his style was so effortless, so wild, so entertaining. It was Fabo. You know what I'm saying? Like we love Fabo in Atlanta. Fabo could do the same three records for the rest of his life. I'd hire him for all my birthday parties. I'd hire him for stadiums because he is genuinely energy. And it, it's, it's the same as Flav. I don't care how old Flav gets, how wild the outfit. Flavor Flav always gives me an energy that I'm manic. I'm an 11-year-old boy again. And Dirt, I always wanted to give Dirt that. So, you know. Plus the beat kind of, the beat kind of reminded you, I think, of, of, Ooh, baby, I like it raw. It raw. Ooh, baby, baby so it was I like, like it raw. Again, I think I think it was because the spirit of that beat. It just you know, there, it it brought that out in us, and and uh, it was just something that you know, Rick. We're always like like when you're making albums and you have a body of work, you're not when you're like with us, we're not really competing or or thinking about it in terms of what are our contemporaries doing. We're sort of thinking about it in terms of what what have we done. What are what what have we not mined yet of that's ours? You know, that like and I think it's the reason why we came out the first song just blazing out the gate because on Run the Jewels three, we decided that it would be interesting to start with a more contemplative jam, you know? And um once we got that out of our system, I think we wanted to do the opposite of that. And and that and and so this jam, Ooh La La, was really also that. It was also like, yo, let's let's make a fucking classic hip hop party banger that translates now that actually translates that. And now it's getting played on fucking radio, like with contemporary shit, which is really crazy. And it's, a, and it's, it's a feeling. It's a feeling that I don't think you hear on the, on the radio much. Like, I don't think that that vibe is apart from that song right now. I don't think you would hear that vibe. No way. Many other people should. Yeah. So great. And you got premiere on the track. Had to, man. Pray. And and we had to give Greg Nice a feature credit because it was like we didn't want to just we didn't want to just take Greg Nice and turn it into something modern. We wanted to bring Greg Nice with us. We wanted people to understand what who he was, even if they didn't get really who he, his history. And and Run the Jewels has been like an amazing excuse for us to do right by the people that we admire, you know, to try and do right by the people that we admire. So when we've been lucky enough to collaborate with heroes of ours, Premier is a hero, Greg Nice is a hero, you know, we try and use our platform to, to really honor them, you know? It, hey, that's what you're supposed to do. Like this shit is exposure. Like I think of how many, like I know Bob James because of rap music. You know what I'm saying? I yeah, know yeah, yeah, yeah. who that is. Like I, if, it, if, it, if it wasn't for like, Think about the Rolling Stones, man. I, I, I fought with them for life because they took Muddy Waters on tour. Like you, like you think about how dope that is. You're exposing your audience to your influences and great music. Like my 13-year-old daughter listens to Dwick. Her 26-year-old brother listens to Dwick. He's been listening to Dwick since he was 13. But 13, she's not supposed to think what her big brother and her dad think are cool, but she does. Because she looked up Greg Nice, you know what I'm saying? She liked his voice. She she's curious. So I, I she's on a pathway to discovering dope shit, and that's all I ever wanted for rap music. I remember when they used to tell us this shit isn't gonna last. It isn't gonna be here. It's it's just like new wave. It's gonna come and it's go. It's like disco. It's yeah, like it's like disco. disco. It's gonna come and it's go. It's like disco, but, kid. You're wasting your time. Exactly, and it's almost fifty now, and and now we get to. Now we get to do the right thing 
by the people sometimes who the right thing wasn't done by. You know what I'm saying? And that's why it was important for me to have the feature. It was important to have Premier actually cut because these things need to become relative. You need to know there's certain shit that I still don't even know. And I've been listening to this shit over half my life now. And I just know that there's a little dope producer somewhere in the South, somewhere here, who's going to get influenced by that. He's going to flip that shit and, and, and the world is going to go nuts. And that's the beauty of can rap we, music. Can, can we just bring up the fact that we're talking to a dude who, through hip hop music, turned us on to rock music? Like, I mean, like, Rick, no, yes. none of us knew who the fuck Aerosmith was. <laughs> like, nope. We didn't know who Aerosmith was, man. Like, we didn't. Like, we didn't, we didn't know really probably at that age who Led Zeppelin was. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we learned about this shit through the Beasties. We learned about it through Run DMC. Like, yep. this is a gift that you gave our generation. You know? Absolutely. Um, your, your, your influences combined with something new. It's no different than what we're, you know, than even referencing your own form of, your own genre, but but referencing a, another time of it, you know? Um, and, and we're very much not interested in making um, retro music, we're, we're, but but we know that what our what our strengths are, man. Like our strengths are not making the new stuff that people are making. Like like our strengths are that we have a history. Our strengths are that we have a musical history of influence, and so we just tried to really, you know, we just tried to like do right by it. You know, it's one of the things that made um, the music that we were making similar to the way you do it was that. We always thought of it as a group. It was always a group. Even even LL Cool J, I thought of it as LL Cool J is a group, and it's got a particular sound, and it's different than pop music. Pop music, you have a singer, and there's a lot of different producers. It's always been that way, like a series of singles right. put together, but it didn't have a point of view, whereas rock groups tended to have a point of view where all of it felt like it was coming from the same place. And again, right. you're you're maybe the only group doing it now that that carries on that tradition of um, the credibility of rock music brought through hip hop. That's interesting. I'll say the rock tradition, the rock tradition. Sure, sure. I feel that because for me, like even locking in, going back to me saying, I really felt like this was supposed to be. When when we were like, yo, we're going to do the one or two, it was like, we got it four. We're not a real group till we get four albums in. Like, and I got that from 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 Zeppelin. Like, I got that directly from Zeppelin because there are times in my youth where I've, I've played, I've just played them. I just all day, I'm just fucking around and they're just playing them in my room and it's the dark because I wanted to rap over the shit I was listening to. I wanted to rap over Black Sabbath. Like, I remember when, when the when Road Warriors were coming to ring. I would be rapping. I'd, I'd be jumping out like, I wanted, I wanted that. I, re, I remember it. So when you chop rocks down, I'm just like, a break, I'm just this motherfucker. This is amazing. The, the authority that, that Running D rapped with was um, and it was so opposite because my mother was 16. So rap 
was Curtis Blow. You know, it was it was Houdini Ash. It was gentlemanly. It was slick. It was player. It was silk shirts, and they had all you know what I'm saying. The the the, the shark skin pants with you know they might have on some shoes. It was some adult shit even because my mom was older. But when that black denim showed up. And those motherfucking starter jackets accompanied to this dark music that I already liked with rock and the guitars. I liked it because my grandparents listened to blues. So I was used to guitar, but it was totally different. But it felt like it was supposed to be. But when I went to like school, nobody gave a fuck that I listened to Led Zeppelin or or our friend's uncle had introduced us to Queen. They, they didn't give a shit. But your music gave me that. And I'm like, oh, so this is what you're supposed to do. Run DMC was the first punk shit. Was the first punk like, yes. like, the, yo, I just want to say this thought real quick before we lose, before I lose it. Yeah. Rap music is the first form of music, first form of production, first form of music that I think ever, where, where if you were a rap music fan or a producer of rap music, made you think about made you listen to other music with the idea of this is dope, but imagine if this were a fucking beat. Imagine if this were a rap song. But rap music, man, like what it made me do throughout my whole life and really starting with your whole crew, because your whole crew were the first ones that were like, uh, no, we're not wearing tassels. We're, we're fucking, we're killers. We're coming out savagely fucking destroying shit and we're stripping it down. And we are, and you know, it was the first like super abrasive, super aggressive shit to come out that, cause you, you, you had something to play off of. You had that whole era that Mike's talking about to play off of and to differentiate yourself and yeah. say, actually, we're not that we're the new breed. Like this is stripping all of that away. No more Mr. Nice guy shit. You know what I mean? And, and I, well, we didn't, we didn't like R and B so that it was like the distinction between the earliest rap records yeah. were a continuation right. of R and B with people rapping on them, right. and we were right. we weren't. That was not our lineage. It was more rock, punk right. rock, drum machines, right. craft work. You know, just different, different, uh, yeah. different influences. So it was more um, the b boy mentality. Same, and that's the same lineage that I have always had. It was always like, yo, I'm not actually I, my. I mean, I love all of this shit, but my direct influences, it's not, it's not sampling soul records. It's not because it's because I'm, I was interested in other disparate sounds. I was interested in other, other sh combining other shit, but it's all respect. Yeah. And I'll say also, I, I would chop up soul records all day just to make the point. It's like, it's more like when you think of what R&B was in the eighties, exactly, exactly, that was exactly. what we didn't like. And, and, but <laughs> What's dope about hip hop to me is it's secular because the last record I ever bought from my grandfather was Buddy Guy's Sweet Tea. And I've grown up listening to Buddy Guy with my grandfather and Sweet Tea didn't sound like Buddy Guy, but the sound was so heavily influenced that he fit right in. It was elect more electronic than I'd heard. It was almost as though Portishead had influenced Buddy Guy, but we know Buddy Guy more than likely influenced Portishead and, and many others after him. Him, but, um, but but the dope shit about rap was growing up with my grandparents. They played the blues, so it was either it was either the blues or gospel is what I was hearing. Rock music, and the reason that I realized later why I loved Zeppelin so much 
was because they were doing their interpretation of what the blues was. The reason I understood the Stones from the first time I heard them is, you know, oh my, this is like the shit my grandmother listens to. It sounds different, but it is the same spirit. Your, what you did with rock music was almost bring the blues home because, because lyrically rap is as dark sometimes as the blues without being sad. Like the blues can say some, some dark things, right? You know, but, but it not be sad. I see my grandparents dancing and at my other grandma's house, my uncles and aunts who drank too much would be dancing and people were joy filled. But some of the songs were like, ooh, rap was aggressive and it could hit hard, but it never saddened me. It made me feel proud. Like in the middle of the 80s when the world was going crazy, what, to see running D out amongst the people rapping their ass off. Because you got to think, I'm in Atlanta doing Atlanta missing and murdered. So there literally is a, a, a feel that I can leave the house at seven years old and I cannot make it home. And rap helped me break whatever fear that was that I had as a child. That it was, dude, I think, why don't think Wayne Williams gets arrested to 82? 82, I'm seven. I'm already walking home back and forth to, to the bus stop by myself. I've already figured out how to sneak on the martyr train and just go on adventures by myself before I go, go you know, get back. So I figured shit out, but I could have not made it. But part of the confidence that happens in 83, 82, 83, 84 is the music Ch changes for me. Like, like I say, man, when I seen the fat boys, when I seen Run DMC, when I seen Cool J, when I, I was like, this isn't, this isn't what my mom's listening to. This shit makes me poke my chest out. You know what I mean? And, and it's, it's like the blues came home. You know, and it, and it just, it, it's, it's crazy how things seem secular like that. Cause I know that crunk music, there, there literally was a rock movement in Atlanta for like nine months to a year and a half. And it's amazing. I loved it, things, by the way. Yeah, yeah. going. I love crunk music. But yo, it relates, it relates back to Ooh La La because like, you, like I said, we're not saying soft shit on that record. We're not saying party shit. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm saying fucking. You know, you're suffering is scrumptious. So put your, you know, they'll put your kids in the oven. Like this yeah. is not. Yeah. If you really look at the lyrics that were spitting, it's some, it's some, it's some, almost damn near, you know, militant shit at times, and it's certainly some paranoid shit at times. But I think that there's something about truth that is funky and fun, even if truth is hard. You know what I mean? Truth brings joy. Yeah. Truth doesn't have to be soft, and joy doesn't have to be soft either. Like joy is is a result it's not a sound you know um if you can create a record that creates joy it didn't mean that you just made something that sounded happy <laughs> you know it just yeah. meant that the result was joy you know and the, and it's and often the lyrics will be hard it doesn't leave you with a heavy feeling it's and it's usually in the context of the things around it you know, they'll be the hardest lyric and then four bars later, it's a joke, yeah. you know, yeah, and it's yeah, yeah. all good. You yeah, know, it's like, yeah, it's hip hop. It's yeah. really all hip hop. No doubt. No doubt. It's all hip hop. Thank you for saying that because that's something Thanks. that we like really take, we hold that importantly, you know? We really hold, like, we hold the, we hold the jokes in just as high regard as we hold those moments of, of, of real seriousness, straight up. And I think that it's more the ability to get a serious message over in a way that people can take it often involves that because yes. if if all if you feel like a, rec a record's just lecturing at you and telling you what to do people don't want to be sermonized no no nope. you know doesn't work like that that's why i always hate when people go into the there's edutainment and in, in what I, I do personally lyrically but 
the goal is to be the hardest motherfucker on the beat. That's 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 yeah. you know <laughs> you know what I'm saying. You learn what they call the twist and turns after. But you, the goal of your gymnast is to outflip the fuck out of everybody and look great doing it. So on a raw artistic level, you know what I'm saying. You, you that's what it's, this shit is about. And I don't I I'm careful or I'm safe and run the jewels and that that's not allowed to happen. Sorry, we're, we're yeah. still getting this fucking joke off. It's one of the things about about protest songs. If you're if you're aiming to make a protest song, it usually fails. Yes. The best protest songs were people singing about their internal struggle. Yes. And then those songs become turned into protest songs. Yes. But rarely are they written from that perspective, because if you write it from that perspective, it doesn't really break through. It right. doesn't doesn't have the energy to transcend. Like Absolutely. you don't want to be and you don't want to be um, you don't want to be told to never do drugs by someone who's never done drugs. You want to you want to hear that shit from somebody who did drugs all their life and now they can barely fucking talk. That's someone I'll listen to, you know, like, oh, you're interesting, you know, yeah. um, but and even even then, even then, though, I don't want them telling me what to do. I don't mind hearing their. I'm happy right, to hear their right. story and maybe right. I can learn from it, but I want to make up my own mind. Correct. And the and, and most of those motherfuckers, they won't tell you shit because they know it's more complicated than that. You know, they know that it's not that easy. They know that it's not just about do the right thing. Here's the clear cut right thing, because anybody who's been through some shit knows the nuance of being through some shit. And they know that they were unreachable by anybody with piety. Piety does not reach your soul. It does not reach your heart. It doesn't really mean anything to anybody who's got any grit or who's got any issues that they're dealing with. It's just, the reaction you're going to get from that is, fuck you, motherfucker. Don't tell me what the fuck to do. You don't know me. Stop fucking lecturing me. And that is the exact opposite of what me and Mike would ever want to be for anybody, you know? And this record that we made is not a protest album in creation. It was, it's just an album of two dudes talking their shit and saying what they need to say. But, but this shit landed in the middle of a protest time. And so all of those sentiments that we were already, already in our hearts and in our minds and naturally came out, not in a way that we wanted to, you know, react to something we're reacting to life like shit that's already been here and um it landed at a time that resonated with people and i think that the reason why it 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 did is because we're not we're not lecturing motherfuckers we're 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 painting pictures we're we're you know we're flawed these are anti-heroes these are not these are not princes of of, of righteousness and goodness we're, we're fucked up <laughs> you know like but i think that's what makes it probably the most successful protest music being made today for that for exactly that reason it's coming from a spirit of reality and not a spirit of telling people what to do right, right. or what to think or how to be right we'll be right back with killer mike and lp after a quick break as listeners to this show you probably consider yourself pretty smart but how smart is your wallet when you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. 
Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. We're back with the rest of Rick's conversation with Run the Jewels. Something else that's interesting about the timing of your album and the content on it is in the history of, of music that has a political side to it. Like if we think in 1969, John Lennon wrote, give peace a chance and put out, give peace a chance. That was in 1969. No one has given peace a chance since 1969. It did not happen. (laughs) You had, you have lyrics about slave owners, pictures on bills and simultaneously we see statues being pulled down of these slaveholders. That's, That's unbelievable. Shout out to Pharrell and and the and the reason and shout out to you because the reason why he's on our record is because we were in your studio and you had him over. It, it is surreal. I'm not gonna lie. It is surreal. And you know, you were there, man. You saw us making this music. None of this shit was going on like this. It wasn't. In, it wasn't in the public consciousness at all. I mean, you know, not shit. at all. It was. It's yeah. It's crazy. Let's uh, let's talk more about that track about the track with Pharrell. How did how I understand you met him at the studio, and then how did it come together? When he left the studio, he he, he was like, "Let me know if you need anything." And um, 
we had that we had that beat we had the, we actually had the verses we just didn't have a hook i think as soon as soon as we recognized that we didn't have the hook it was it was very very soon after pharrell had been like let it, let me know if you need anything and um i think it was just really obvious to us we were like let's let's take him up on that let's see what he'll do because he's a genius i mean he's like we knew that he would write something great and we had no idea what it would be. No idea. It could have been, he could have been saying a word. He could have just repeated a word and it probably would have been just fucking dope. I give, I, you know, I give, I give, I give him so much respect because I was blown. I'm blown away when people are generous with their, with their artistic shit when they don't have to be, you know, someone in Pharrell's position, he could have given us pretty much anything and we would have thought it was the shit. It didn't have to be really connecting to what we were saying, but he clearly really listened to what we were saying. And he connected it in a way that I don't think that we even knew it could be connected. You know, he wrote that hook and, and, it, and it was not the, we didn't know which Pharrell we were going to be getting. We didn't know which side of him we were going to be getting. When we heard that shit, we were like, Oh, Pharrell came into our world and, and, and stood up in it. And that's, and that was a huge honor to, you know, in my mind was like, wow, man, like we're really, we're, you know, to in our, in our minds, we're still just these underground dudes. You know what I mean? Like we're still in that world. We were there our whole careers. Incredible. And when did Zach get on? He got on quick. There were two songs that, that I played Zach. This was before we had two chains locked in. So I played him two jams. We had the one jam that, um, that didn't make it to the album because of because of sample clearance issues, um, and we had just and and I played him both of those. Now the other one was a lot more straightforward. It was a lot more sort of mid tempo. It was a little bit. It was probably and, and Zach reacted to that one. I think kind of on some shit like that's a normal pocket for me. I could get in there and kill that. And I I pushed him to do the just thing because it was more of a, a double time, more of a modern like bop. And I don't think anyone has ever heard Zach on on something like that. I know they have. And um, he rose to the challenge because I was just kind of like, no, I think you should. I think that that would be obvious. You know, I think you should try this one. He was on Run the Jewels two and Run the Jewels three. This will be the third album of ours that you're on. You're basically the unofficial member of Run Run the Jewels. So he sent me that verse. And he kind of presented it to me like it was just a demo. And he did the verse with, a, with just an SM58, just handheld, like in his home studio. And you can hear it. It's all sort of distorted. It's got that, it's got that sound. And I was like, all right, cool. So, well, so what are you going to do? You're going to re-record it then on like, you know, a better mic or whatever? And he was like, he was like oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, like a couple of days later, he was like, so, uh, so what kind of mic do you think I should get? <laughs> and I was like, I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, well, you said you wanted me to do it on a, a, a different, a better mic or whatever. He was like, so what, what kind of mic should I buy? And I was like, you don't, you don't have another mic. And he was like, nah. And I was like, wait a second. He was like, I was like, so you used an SM58, a stage mic, not even at this point, the stage mics that we're using, a stage mic for that every band in America uses, no matter how small or big they are. And he told me, he was like, this is what I recorded. And you probably know this, but this is how I recorded every single Rage Against the Machine song with the handheld SM58. 
And so what was a demo to me, which because at first it was a demo because it was like sounded distorted and he presented it kind of like a demo, like, you know, hey, I'm just, what do you think I could, you know, ended up being the final verse. I was like, well, I'm not going to argue. If you did Rage Against the Machine on that mic, then that's about as pure Zach De La Rocha as you can get. And I'm not going to fucking, I'm not going to fuck that up. So it was like, it just ended up being that first take that he did ended up being the, you know, the final verse. And that's why it sounds differently. I didn't treat it different. I didn't treat the sound. It was just like, distorted. Yeah. yeah. You said there was an, another track that had a sample problem. Have you had to deal with sample problems often historically? Nah, that was the first time that we had had something this, that really, that really like ended up throwing us off at first. It was sort of a, a 60s rockish shit. sort of thing. Um, <laughs> anyway, so what it, what happened was we did the song. We loved it. It was really, it was like really like, a, we, we just said, fuck it. We're going to really make this song. We're going to loop it up. We're going to chop it up for the beat. We're going to use the hook. We're going to like, you know, we're going to do this because we've never done this before. And, and we, and we, we stepped to them and they were, they were like, yeah, we're cool with it. They listened to it. They were like, yeah, we're, we're cool with it. Then they said, but we want a hundred percent of the, of everything. We want a hundred percent of the publishing. We want a hundred percent of the master. And me and Mike said, but please, can we maybe have something? Because obviously it's not, hundred percent because we're on and they were like nope that's the deal and we were like all right fine fuck it that's the deal then that's what you get I, we we wanted it they said cool we mixed it we mastered the album and when we were getting all the final little details of the contracts and everything and getting ready to submit the record they had kind of disappeared so we started to get a little nervous and, and, we, and we hit them up and mind you literally about to hand in the record and get the get the you know second half of the advance so that we could eat and, you know, they changed their mind. They changed their mind. I just said they, they changed their mind. They don't want, they don't want you to, do, and we were going to give them a hundred percent. So, you know, I don't, I don't, I, I'm not mad at anyone about that, but that was the first, but it was like shit. So we ended up having to rework. It was either we were going to throw the whole song away or we were going to find something that. So we threw it away and we came up with another record. That was a yeah. motherfucking amazing. And that's the beauty of tragedy. Yeah, and for bands that are out there, rap groups, they're, they're, I've seen Outkast um, tell me why they never got in the sound. And I was like, why? Because Curtis Mayfield mentored them early. And he told them, essentially, you can create your own vibe. You can be inspired by shit. And I think that we've always trusted ourselves to do that. L get inspired and do amazing shit. But... You know, you try sometimes. Sampling is dope. And when the other artist is like, fuck it, fuck it. Try yeah. chuck the whole shit and make yourself do it over. So we had to take a mastered album, go back after having chucked the record and put it in. And, and for us, my fear at first was, man, am I going to not like my album as much as I like my album because it's missing the record that, that I had? But it's not because the record that we created became its yeah. own special thing. So I Beautiful. appreciate the challenge and, 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 and I appreciate getting the turn down because it forced us to it, it forced us to man up and uh, you know. Tell me about uh let's talk about the lyrics for Walking in the Snow. How'd they come about? I started it and um and I I was really pissed off that day because I was I was I was feeling very I was feeling very angry 
about the fucking widespread hypocrisy of like institutional hypocrisy, you know, um, I was feeling very fucking annoyed and pissed off philosophically by, by two groups of people. The first group of people was the, the type of person who, because they're not connected to the suffering of other people, allow authoritarianism to rise under the guise of, uh, because they simply just don't connect to the emotional aspect of other people suffering. And so I wanted to write something that challenged the logic of that. And that said, hey, listen, even if you don't care about other people that don't look like you or that aren't in your community, even if you can't muster up the empathy to connect other human suffering to the, the collective, of human suffering let me appeal to your logic and say how fucking stupid it is for you to allow concentration camps to be built in america because you don't care about the people that are being put in them and let me point out to you the the fallacy of it which is that do you think that once that group of people that you don't care about is gone that those concentration camps get dismantled and everyone throws a party? No, you have aided and been complicit in the creation of a death machine that must then be fueled and continue. And the next further down, the next person down on the totem pole, the next group down on the totem pole gets the cage. And that's probably going to be you if you're poor. And I needed to say that. It was something that I was screaming at. And the, other, and the other thing I needed to say, as a non-religious person and as someone who didn't grow up with any dogma or didn't grow up going to church or anything like that, but considers himself somewhat spiritual and also admires certain tenets and aspects of different, like, you know, um, different religions and, ta- and, and take from them sort of things that, you know, that feel inspiring to me. One of the things that I find incredibly difficult to reckon with is the um, the hypocrisy of the so-called religious movement in America that somehow manages to qualify uh, exceptions for their the, for the very ten- tenets that they say that they are basing their life around. In, in other words, "Thou shalt not kill" unless it's somebody that I don't deem worthy of having life you know i wanted to challenge the idea that of of this sort of insipid poisonous version of christianity that has risen in america hand in hand with nationalism in other words the idea that jesus and 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 his teachings and nationalism can ever share the same space and share the same you know ideology in any way and question the idea as someone who's not even of your group and say, hey, did it ever occur to you that you may not actually be Christian? You know, if you are genuinely motivated and um, and and have focused your life around the what you say you have, which is which is what you read in a book about the the teachings of Jesus Christ, which I'm familiar with, it seems like there's a bit of a clash here between those teachings. And what you are, what you have accepted going on. And I think you're a fucking hypocrite. And I think that if one scrap of what you purport to live your life as a guideline connected with you in a real way, you would be a completely different person and you wouldn't allow 
the, 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 you wouldn't allow this to happen. And, and, and that's just something that I just personally felt like it's been, it was brewing in me and I needed some space. I needed to fucking say it. And I needed to get, you know, I needed to get at it in a very clear, like, I'm going to fight you with some logic here. If you can fight back with my logic, let me know. But I think I've just, I think I'm going to dismantle you with, with this and someone has to fucking say it. And, you know, and then I, and then basically I passed it off to Mike and Mike wrote the, one of the most devastatingly beautiful and poignant and also uh, from a different perspective and then looped it back around to what I had set up in the front about Christianity. So, you know, I'll, I'll let Mike, you know. Bef- Mike, uh, one more question before, before we get to the continuation um, was there a triggering event that got you started on the song? Was there one moment? I, I can't say that I remember exactly what 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 got me started on it, except to say that if you're on fucking social media it, and you see the at the the sort of the mind numbingly hypocritical groupthink that people are taking that that people are are activated in. And, and the excuses that people are making for having a low or questionable moral code and the things that they're associating with, it'll drive you fucking crazy. And you want to scream to the world, but you, you know what? You know what doesn't do anything? Fucking pointing it out on Twitter. <laughs> so I think I, I think that I was just disgusted in general with, with, with all of that shit. And, I, and, and it had bubbled up in me and I just needed to write about it. I just needed to write about it. Great. So Mike, you heard what, what L wrote, and then what was, tell me what happened. I mean, it's incredible, first of all. And he calls, you know, the nationalism or the fascism that's coming in our country is one of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant um, nationalism served with a big heaping marriage to Constitution and Bible. And, you know, it's going to be ushered in that way. And he called culturally, like, his people to task on that, right? So... If you if you look at it, and that's true, I was I was talking to white people, by the way. Absolutely, 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 absolutely was. But white people have the option of tuning out the ranting white cousin. They do it a lot. There's always that one or two white cousins that's in the family. Like you say, nigger in joke is wrong, Uncle. You shouldn't do this and. Then the whole family's like, well, why did you have to say something? You ruined the day. But they're simply the one to say, you know, morally, that's just, you know, it's, it's, we shouldn't be doing this fuck shit. Or, you know what I'm saying? And that verse, you could. But my determination, or a lot of times, my, my balance in this group is to personalize it so that you can't. So I'm also talking to white people. When I'm telling them you're usually freest from this age, from this preschool age, is usually when you're free. And then you're programmed to view poor people in this way. Your father and mom did this because they worked their ass off. It had nothing to do with the fact that your grandparents left them houses, which they could sell, start to build wealth, while the black kid in your class grandparents never owned homes because of redlining or homes were underappreciated purposely by developers so they could buy them 20 years later like, and, and, and put stadiums there. You know what I'm saying? So you, in your mind, the context has always been fair. You're robbed of an opportunity to see the Confederacy, per se, as a treasonous act done to break up a country because it's always taught to you as the war of northern aggression and not the war of a failed secession. You know what I mean? So they have this luxury, but then... I literally pull them and tell them, you have become so apathetic. Television 
is, is feeding you the narrative of everything is okay. It's them that you've become so apathetic. You literally watch for eight minutes and 46 seconds as, I'm, as I die. That's, that's what, and it's replaced your empathy with apathy. And now what I'm telling you is just like L told you, and it's interesting because L asked me about the Chomsky and the Bukowski thing because they're not in the same vein. And I was like, yeah, of course I read both. One gives a fuck, sees it for what it is, is an anarchist and attempts to wake you up. The other sees it for what it is, chooses to indulge in nothingness, beautiful writing, women and alcohol. I am both those human beings in one person rapping. And, and, and I think L got it once I was like, yeah, of course. But because I wasn't coming from the militaristic Chomsky. I wasn't coming from the fuck it all, I'm ignoring all. I was coming from a place of I understand both. I, I get it. You know, I get why one of the Jews record so are 75 percent. I'm wrapping my ass off, punching. There's 25 percent of I have to show you this raw and beautiful humanity. So I had to give them that. So no matter where in the spectrum they were on whiteness, whether they were the raving lunatic cousin at the end of the table or Uncle Bob said, everyone is covered in saying I get it. But, but, but besides me getting it, I have to help you understand that Dick Gregory got this shit for 50 years before me. And I was blessed the last three years. This is where I personalize it, because I said earlier, I ended up in WikiLeaks. And that scared the shit out of me. Popping up in Hillary's Clinton email scared the fucking shit out of me. And it was right around the time when my wife really did tell me after her friends were like, no, this, like, he's like, Mouth makes Mars. She said, I need a husband more than the world needs a martyr. She really said those words to me. I may owe her publishing, we'll see. If we ever get divorced, we make them after everything. But I needed to understand the things that he helped me understand in his last three years of life. And what he really helped me understand more than anything is beyond race, beyond ethnicity, beyond what we consider class and culture and all these things that are differences us. There is the state and there is us. And the state will kill you just like they killed Martin, just like they killed Malcolm, just like they were culpable in the murder of Patrice Lumumba, just like they, they raised the price of Asad Shakur's bounty under a black president. The state does that. And I needed people to understand, fuck the, the line that you impressed by about that I can't breathe because that triggered you in the moment. After this moment, the state will still murder you. They murdered your messiah, they're going to murder whoever is poor after they murder us. And until you understand that in that moment, then everything just happens again and again and again. And the crazy cousin rants and his black friend is like, thanks for inviting me over. I love that Mike's like, I took a whole verse to challenge the logic of nationalism and versus versus um, being, you know, following the tenets of, of, of Christianity or you know, whereas Mike handily dismantled the whole thing in one line. And it was beautiful because it was like, you know, it, the song needed that too. The song, it, need, it needed to be like, and here's a summary in one fucking line of why any allegiance, any, any, any principles that are, that are allegiant to nationalism or the state are incorrect, are absolute, is an absolute fallacy. Like, and if you need any example of that, fundamentally the very person that you frankly are pretending to help you know God, whose principles you're pretending guide your life he was murdered by the same fucking people that you are now showing blind allegiance to you go so where does so so how is it that you fan, managed to find the fucking loophole 
in your fucking house? How did you manage to find the one loophole that allowed you to exist in two spaces at one time? I believe in Jesus Christ and all of the tenets of Jesus Christ, and I'm a Christian. And also, don't challenge the state. That doesn't make any fucking yeah, sense. In fact, you make Jesus a hood ornament for the state. Right. And that's that's the scary part. Yeah, it's terrifying. Tell me, tell me more about Dick Gregory. Did you? Re- how did you? How did you? No, I, I re- that was my man. What the fuck you talking about? Let me tell you, man. Tell me. I get a call one day. Hey, Killer Mike, what's up, man? I get, I get two texts actually. Dick Gregory's in town. Um, I'm a Dick Gregory stand and fan already because my grandmother, my dad's my paternal grandmother. She would let me. My my maternal grandmother that raised me. You know, after her blues phase, she went straight to the church and it was just Jesus. It was Jesus around the clock around our crib. So my other grandma's house, I got a chance to listen to like Red Fox records and Richard Pryor records. And, you know, you start with Pryor because that's the biggest guy in the world when you're young. And then so I start going back and you go find, you know, you find Dick Gregory's records and. I was a kid that would read the encyclopedia. Like I was naturally curious and I wanted to be smart. And his stuff was sharp and smart. And then, you know, I don't know how, I don't, I don't know how I was doing the VCR era. My grandpa got like some old black and white stuff from him and Red Fox was on some of them. You know, it was just like when they put four different comedians on one tape and that type stuff. Uh, so I was into it. So I went out and I met him at one of the shows that he came out here, bought a book. Um, I met him after that when I went to a show, but I got to sit with him and talk with him. But before we got the chance to do that, we had to get on the phone with him. And it was me and T.I. We had just met him officially on the phone and we were asking him what method should we take of using our celebrity to help, you know, the world. And we named a bunch of shit that had already been done. And at one point, T.I. says March and he curses us the fuck out for like 45 minutes. March! What you gonna march for, nigga? They just gonna tell you you're gonna march at 7 o'clock and if your ass out there at 7.05, they're gonna come fuck you up. And I'm just like, what the fuck? Like, he's cursing us out. Tip after about 15 minutes probably hangs up. Tip calls me after the rant like, oh man, my phone dropped. I'm like, you're a goddamn lie. Your phone is fucking dropped. But in the curse out, it was such love and a want for us to, it was, again, I'm raised by grandparents. It was no different than my grandfather getting frustrated with me trying to show me how to bleed breaks. But I understood how much he cared. Then I just wanted to be around him. So whenever he'd come through, I'd invite the other homies out. we go watch him. And I got a chance to start talking to him. So it wasn't an all the time constant relationship, but it was, he always talked good about me. I found out after he died in other rooms. I was the only rapper's name he even remembered. Other people, he would say, that boy. You know what I mean? Like that guy that I met, you know, but he literally would say that. He talked about me to people like Kathy Hughes, the most powerful black woman in radio. And I found all this out that he did, but he, the conversations we had would be hours. It'd be after his show at 11, 12, and we got him to four or five in the fucking morning. My wife said to me about a few hours ago, let's go look at a tree. And I'm like, absolutely. Because we had a tough day today. We were out doing business and we were sniping at each other. And I asked him in front of her one night, hey, what do you do? You've been married all these years with your wife. What do you do when y'all argue, fuss and fight? He said, just hold hands and look at a tree. And I'm going to tell all married people, 
if you put your fucking ego aside for 10 minutes and walk the fuck outside, stand in the grass and look at a fucking tree, something happens or it's just fucking over. Just go ahead. Something happens. It, and that's for <laughs> real. So I still live by the things, some of the things that, he, that he's taught. You know what I'm saying? So I, I, knowing him was one of the great honors of my life um, because very few people get, and, and I'm gonna tell you this, I grew up knowing Reverend James Orange. I grew up, who was a direct assistant to Dr. King in organizing. I grew up knowing Joseph Lowry. I grew up knowing great people from my culture. But the beautiful thing about Dick Gregory was he really became my friend and mentor and imparted things on me that, that, will, that will give me a wisdom in life that are much, much richer than had I not known him. Beautiful. And I want to thank his family for sharing him with the world because I cannot understand until he died, how arduous that must be. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing about Dick Gregory. I've always been a fan, so it's nice to hear. And I don't know anyone who ever met him, so it's, it's beautiful to hear. Tell me where the, um, the hook came from in the ground below. Love, love never meant so much to me. The, it went through so many different, it went through so many different changes, man. Um, Is it a sample? It, it, no, no, no. That's Mike singing. Really? Yeah. I had no idea. That's the greatest compliment I've ever got. <laughs> I really didn't know. I, re- I, I had no idea. I assumed it was a sample, but I didn't know. It was something that I had written that I had rapped, and then I sent to Mike, and then Mike went to the studio and he sang it because he was inspired to sing it. And then we ended up getting on the phone and being like, "All right, let's combine." It's just it was just a it was the last song that we did, and um, we just ended up sort of doing a hybrid. I kind of sent it back and forth to him a few times, and and yeah, but Mike Mike had done the whole. Mike took what I had done. I had wrapped the whole thing. Mike took it and he sang the whole thing. And, you know, we had to meet in the middle. <laughs> Basically, we had to meet in the middle. Yeah. Cool. But I love the way it came out. Me too. I love the way it came out. I think it sounds awesome. Yeah. And how did the singing sections in Pulling the Pin get written? I wrote those. They're beautiful. Thank you. And again, sort of similar. I, ra- I, I wrote it and it was re- written to be wrapped. And then me and Mike both were trying to kind of see if we could sing it. And then uh, wasn't it wasn't working? And then you know Mike tells this story, and fifty percent of the time I smile, and fifty percent of the time I want to punch him in the face because I remember what it felt like. But all of the time I'm happy that it happened this way. Is that basically Mike more so than anything that I've ever seen him dig in on? And he, Mike was like, "We need to get like a soul singer, like a soul voice to do this." And it was long, you know how long we were working on this record, man. And it was, and it was, it was laid in the game, and I was, I was tired, and I, and I was like, man, I, I didn't. And so we sent it to a couple of different singers, and Mike was like, I don't like you, and I was annoyed because I was like, motherfucker, because you know, part of me was just like, I'm tired, I'm just tired, but I, I love him for it because he insisted, he insisted because he felt something in it, and that was a big honor for me because. When you write something, you want your partner to feel it, right? It's, it, it, and he felt it, and he was he was telling me that in his way that he felt what I was what I was saying, but he was also saying it's because I feel it that we can't say it. <laughs> we couldn't do it. It, it would it, that shit wouldn't have been right. Like what if what if what if Whipping Post was saying pop versus by two well a wailing Southern boy? You know what I'm saying? I'm like. What is what is what is respect if uh, Aretha and I seen so I just I knew it had to be sold so and, and then Will you know one of the managers says 
you know, mate, what, bro, what about me? It, it, it is like fucking light bulbs go off at the potential. And I can remember because I had developed a relationship with her a few years ago, but we were supposed to work. We didn't work. But like an auntie nephew relationship, like she really is one of the most beautiful radiating souls, even to just to talk to over the phone. Wow. I don't envy many people, but I envy Elle for getting a hugger, you know. But when when it came back that she consider it and then that she do it, it was it was just like like a like a beam. Like I could like, man, it happened. I mean, yeah, it's ordained it was ordained, man. Cause like like real yeah. shit, like no one else that I know of alive now, inactive in music now, who is 80 years old, who could connect a lifetime of struggle and beauty and soul. But we're really young compared to her. Like we're of a totally different generation. And even though we're sophisticated, I believe in our understanding of certain things, there is something that can not, that we were not capable of expressing through our vocals. The most beautiful thing about this story of the collaboration is that it's, again, a great example of collaboration. And I'm not even talking about the singing part. I'm talking about Mike hearing something of yours and caring more about it than you do. And right. insisting, In a way, yeah. And insisting that it be, and that's what makes a great partnership in that you you each make each other better, even when the other guy's ready to give up. Yeah. You push each and other I, and to Rick, the... And Rick, I'm not usually ready to give up, man, but I have been working on this record for No, no, no. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful story. And, it's a beautiful story. And, you know, I knew that, too. There was not like I fought, like, it's, like, I understood it even as it was happening. I was just tired, but I knew, but I understood it enough to be like, okay, let's keep... You were just done. You were just done. Like, look, yo, the truth of the matter is, is that... um the, the the labor of love that I put into these records, my job on these records, it, it takes a long time. Like what I have to do on these records takes a long time and a lot of hours. And, um, and you know, it's just, it's just, it's what I asked for. It's what I wanted. I wanted to be the guy who, who makes the music and who crafts the album and I'm good at it, but it's also, it's it, it can be tiring after a while. And, of and, course. Um, and Mike had to pick up that energy, man. He had to be the tired. one to say, and you're right. He cared about it in that moment. He cared more about what I said than I did. I was ready to throw in the towel. And that, but that energy is, I feel like when, when I connected to it, when I hear it, it's that, it's that collab, it's the energy of all, everyone involved working together to get to this better place. It's remarkable. Exactly. Beautiful. It's a beautiful story. I feel, exactly. I feel very, I feel very, very lucky that it happened that way, and I, I feel very honored that I, um, Mike had Mike had met her before. I had never met her, and then I, I the, the day the day after she, um, she said she would do it. I was on a plane to Chicago. I was I was I was there the next day, and being a part of Run the Jewels has led to some of the most beautiful experience, like experiences as a musician and a person that I've ever had. Like um, being able to be in the room and to be and to be working with someone who has that, that you know that caliber spirit and and something that neither me nor Mike could ever um, could not yet not yet in our lives could we bring the amount of pain and history and love 
and anguish to that record. And she has it. And, and it's so inspiring because it's like, wow, this is the point of keeping making art. Like, this is the point of, this is why you don't ever stop. You, you have to keep going and keep, because there's something that you're going to be able to pull off at 80 years old that you were incapable of pulling off at 50, you know? And, and it's inspiring to me. It's like, man, I'm, I'm going, I'm just going to keep going because I think that I've seen it. It doesn't die. It just, it changes and it becomes more powerful. And she connected us to generations of, of protests and heart and love that, 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 you know, we're very lucky to be connected to in any way. Beautiful. And earlier, Mike, you said that, um, you needed to do at least four albums for it to be like a real, for it to be a real project. And I feel like yeah, supposed to be a real band. Now with this fourth album, you guys are just getting started. Feels like just the beginning really does to me too. That's what, that's what Mike keeps saying too. I just, I just take it one record at a time because I, because it's just been, it's just been a friendship. You know what I mean? For me, cause you know, for me, I don't like to think of it in any terms except are we making a new song? Are we making a new jam? You know, cause all of these things just start with songs for me and Mike. And the one thing that still kept me coming back that is like all of the stuff that was, is hard about run the jewels and all the stuff that gets complicated with run the jewels. There is another aspect to it too, which is that the, the complication is never about music. The complicate, like the music and the, and the and the spirit and the energy that we have when we're in our zone, it's always been surprising. It's always been exciting. It's always been invigorating. It's always been something I couldn't predict, and I'm always seeking out that. And and and, but at the same time, I always like to think. From the very beginning, I always kind of like to think, the more, your your un, your union and your partnership with someone is more powerful. If that person knows that the second that they don't want to be in this, the second that this doesn't feel right to them, that it's all good. I still love you. You don't have to do this with me if it doesn't feel right. And of course, we know that we're not walking away from each other. But I'm just saying that spirit has always been there with us. Like, yo, look, this is a choice. You're choosing to be in the room with me every time. You you don't you don't have to. And and because we're both choosing to be in the room with each other every time it keeps, it keeps the love there. You know what I mean? It yeah. keeps, it's like we're walking in with our eyes open. And so Mike's often like, we'll say that. And of course in the back of my head, I'm like, yeah, no doubt, <laughs> but I'm a little superstitious. Understood. I don't like to say shit like that. Understood. I don't like to say shit like that out loud. I like to just let it happen. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you both. And I look forward to seeing you sooner than later. Love Thanks, Rick. Rick. Peace. Thanks to LP and Killer Mike for taking the time to break down their new album. You can hear Run the Jewels 4 along with our other favorite songs from them by heading to brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel to catch up on past episodes and bonus interview footage, including an extended cut of today's episode. You can subscribe at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast. Broken Record is produced with help from Jason Gambrell, Mila Bell, Leah Rose, Eric Sandler, and Martin Gonzalez for Pushkin Industries. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Peace. 
Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.